Good morning again. How is everyone? If you have your Bibles, if you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, I, I'd appreciate that. And if you don't have a message outline, you can pick one right up out those center doors at the ministry counter. Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered what makes a sport team win year after year. I, I love watching sports, or at least during the running. In football, it's the Kansas City Chiefs. They won the Super Bowl this past year. They don't win it every year, but it seems like the last several years they've been in the running every year. Uh, before that, it seemed like it was the New, New England Patriots was always winning. In basketball in the 90s, I bring this up because we live in the Chicago area, it was the Chicago Bulls. It seems like they were always winning or in the running to win it, right? And the question is asked, what make, makes a team keep winning or in the running all the time? Uh, is it, if it's a professional team, some people think it's, it's the owner. It's the owner that does that. He, he opens up his wallet. He writes the big check to get the best athletes, right? Uh, others think it's the general manager. The general manager is in charge of that selection process of bringing the right people together on the court or the field. And, and other people say, well, no, it's the manager, it's the coach. He's the one that's got to get those talented athletes to work together as a team. And then others say, no, it's the, the actual the players. It's the players on the court. It's the uh, Patrick Mahomes or the Tom Brady's or the Michael Jordan who will bring out the best in his teammates so they can win and keep winning for long periods of time. There was an author that kind of studied that and worked on that question. He said, what makes a team win year after year? And the conclusion after research is interesting. He said it wasn't the, the owner, it's not the general manager, it's not the coach or the manager, it's not the star player. What it is, he says, the character quality of the team captain. The character quality of the team captain. And that research caused a lot of people to rethink what leadership is and what success is. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We have been in our series, in Nation in Trouble. We've been talking about the life of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. We first began the book of Samuel. The name that has it bears his name. He wasn't even born at that time, right? Right? He wasn't even born when we started. And his parents are living in a time where the Bible says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the world was a chaotic. It was a mess. And everything was going on. And God answered that challenge by answering the problem that day of depravity. And he, by bringing a prophet into the world, not by riding on a war, white horse to, to save the day or have, holding revival meetings, he did it by the answer of a prayer of a barren woman who couldn't have children. And she just, just said, Lord, I, I want to have children, and, and if you give me a son, I promise to, to give him back to you that he might serve you all the days of his life. And God answered her prayer, and he gave her a son. And, and the son born was Samuel. The name Samuel means the name of God or, or, or God hears. And Samuel, after three years of age, after he was weaned from his mother, he became the understudy of the high priest at that time, which was Eli. And he was there in Shiloh ministering to the Lord, and he's growing. And he's growing and, and maturing in the Lord. And finally the tame, time came where he was named the high priest of Israel. Eli, the high priest, had died, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. So now Samuel is, is high priest. And when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel now is a very old man. And he's able to crown one king, and a king by the name of Saul. Remember, the people said, we want to have a king like all the other nations. So they rejected God as their theocratic ruler. For a human being, we want a king like all the other nations. And they chose a man by the name of Saul, who the Bible says was head and shoulders above everyone else. And he was the most handsome man in all the land. Can you imagine that? Sounds like a fairy tale. The most handsome man. So they chose him and by the way he looked. And he, had, he was a great king to begin with. But then he began to make some mistakes. He disobeyed God, did not listen to the voice of God. So the nation, again, was in terrible shape. 
So that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we're at today. And this is the last major episode in the life of Samuel before he dies, the last one. And so we're going to learn an amazing truth. Trusting God's ways results in our good. Let me show you three ways. If you have your outline, the first one, trusting in God's way. The first one, trust God's word, and he will lead us. Trust God's word, and he will lead us. Let's read verse 1 in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Right away in this first verse, if we find out that Samuel the prophet and the priest was on a different page than God, right there. And Samuel, I'm sure, became very close with Saul, the king of Israel, over the years, and, and, and he was grieving because Saul didn't deliver the way that Samuel and God wanted him to deliver. And so uh, he, the, the kingdom now was in difficult shape, and he was mourning over all of this. But you remember when we looked at last week, that Samuel looked at Saul and says, uh, God has rejected you as king, and it's over. And Saul reached, and he grabbed Samuel's robe, and he tore a piece of his robe. And Samuel says to Saul, the way you tore my robe is how God has tore the kingdom from your hands. And so now God is saying to Samuel, why are you still grieving? It's time to move on. And grieving is okay. And some of you might be in the grieving process. You might be grieving today, and you're in the midst of that. And grieving is good, and it's okay. But we grieve with hope knowing that God is in control, right? We know he's in control, but there is a time where we can't let our grief stop us from moving forward. And that's what he was saying to Samuel. God said to Samuel, why are you still grieving? Go fill your horn with oil. It's time to anoint the new king. So let's be on the same page as God. So many times we're over here and God's over there. We're expecting God to come where we're at. We need to get on the same page where God's at. And Samuel had to get on the same page where God was at. And sometimes we need to, to do that ourselves. So God said, I'm going to anoint a king this time my way. I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. He's already chosen. I've chosen my way this time. And God is saying to Sam, you're going to go. You're going to leave Ramah. And you're going to travel 11 miles to the south to a little town called Bethlehem. Ring any Bible bells for anyone? Bethlehem. And he says, you're going to find there a man by the name of Jesse. And you're going to anoint one of his sons as the next king of Israel. Fantastic. Great. Wonderful. Right? Except for the fact the line between Ramah and Bethlehem goes right through Gibeah. That's where King Saul was. He has the troops. He has the army. And you can imagine what's going through Samuel's head right now, his conversation. Even as God has given the instructions, he says, okay, but if I go through Gibeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it out of there. And he imagine the conversation he's having uh, that is going through his mind. Samuel the prophet's there, and he says, well, I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to leave here from uh, Ramah. I'm going to go down, and before I get to Bethlehem, I'm going to go through Gibeah. And Saul's going to hear about it. People are going to tell him, hey, Samuel's in, in town. And Saul's going to come out there and he say, hey, Samuel, what are you doing here? Huh? Well, I'm going to Bethlehem. Well, why are you going to Bethlehem? Well, I'm going to meet a, a man by the name of Jesse. Why are you going to meet Jesse? Well, i, I got to talk to one of his sons. Why do you got to talk to one of his sons? And Samuel said, well, if you have to know, one of his boys is going to be the next king of Israel. I'm here, have oil here, I'm going to anoint him as the next king. Saul would say to Samuel, Samuel, you're a dead man. You're not leaving this town. It's over for you. You're not going to anoint the next king. I'm king. And that's what Samuel was afraid. He was afraid of that. He was fearful that was going to happen. And you know that by the very next verse, verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. 
the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? If a prophet comes to your city, it normally was not a good thing because a prophet could call down fire from heaven. He could bring down judgment upon you, right? So when he comes into town, a prophet shows up in your city, you say, uh, why are you here? And do I have enough time to get me and my family out of town? And so they ask, did you come in peace? Or should we expect judgment? What's coming down? And what did it say in verse 5? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel in his fear listen and obey the commands of God. That's a good thing, right? Always a good thing when we do that. Samuel says, he's going to kill me. Saul's going to kill me. And God has a plan. God already has a plan. God says, no, this is what you need to do. Take a heifer, and when you leave Ramah, take that heifer with you, and you go through Gibeah. And if anybody asks you why you're here, say, I'm going to make a sacrifice. And when you arrive in Bethlehem, the elders are going to be concerned. Why are you here? Tell him I'm here to offer a sacrifice. And then I want you to invite Jesse and his sons to come with you. So when, you, when we follow the plans of God, our fear can go away, right? And God knows that. When we follow his plans, God always has a plan, our fears can go away. If we follow our own, own, own plans, we're going to have great fear in our life. We have the unknown. God already knows what's going to happen. So we must follow God's plans. How many of you ever bought something, and on the package it says, some assembly required? Some people panic when they see that. Some people panic when they see that. Uh, a few months ago, I bought a grill, and you open up this big box, and in there, there's all kinds of packages. I mean, not just one. There's like 20 packages of, of screws and, and bolts and nuts and washers and pins and cables and this and that. And how many of you, when you open it up, and, and inside there, by the way, there was a little booklet called the instruction booklet. How many of you look at the instruction booklet and you throw it away? And you say, I don't need that. I can put this together. And if you do assemble some about the instruction booklet, how many of you have parts left over? And when you're done, I learned many, many years ago that to follow that instruction booklet with great detail, it causes a lot less stress, a lot less confusion. This is our instruction booklet as followers of Jesus Christ, that God leads us and, and guides us and directs us. This is our compass that God gives to us, not only to pick uh, uh, someone, a leader for a nation or, or, or a leader for a church, but it's so good to make in decisions of life that we have to make each and every day that God gives us right here. That who should I date? Or who should I marry? What school should I go to? What job should I take? Should I go in business? Should I go in business with this person? What, if I got health concerns, where should I go? What should I do? What's the next step? Or what do we have to do? We have to follow God's instructions, right? We have to follow his word. And God has it all right here. It's all right here. He gives us his precepts and principles, and out of that, we can make good decisions in life. He may not address every little detail, but those principles, those precepts, helps guide us to make the right decisions in life. And so we need to follow those instructions. We do. They said, it is good, but we have to trust God. We can trust him, right? So I encourage you to follow God's word. Don't just discard it and, and put it aside and throw it away like we do a lot of times with these little instruction booklets. But listen to what the Word of God says. We can trust Him, but we have to follow His Word. As I said, it's the compass of life. And sometimes God guides us, and, and we can't just say, I'm going to walk this straight line with God. No, sometimes God has us go to the left or go to the right. We won't know that without this book. God will never lead us in conflict with His Word. 
He always leads us according to his word. So we can depend upon this. This will never lead us astray. If we're going apart from this, we're going the wrong way, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. So we have to, be tr we have to trust God and, and follow him. So we need to follow his instructions, right? Uh, let me find where I'm at here. And notice what happens here. They're all gathered at Jesse's house. He, his sons are there. And you can imagine, uh, there's not a time where a prophet comes to a house without notice. They know he's coming there. The word has got there. And he's there. He's got the heifer. They sacrifice him. And they're going to have a meal. But before they have a meal, they've got to anoint the next king of Israel. So they've got to get him. They've got to anoint him. So Jesse looks and says, it's going to be one of my sons. Got to be a proud father going to be one of my sons going to be the next king of Israel is all excited the passage doesn't tell us directly but indirectly it does tell us it seems he lines up his boys according to their age perhaps what he would think would be the next uh, natural order selection for the next king of Israel he's got in his mind Jesse does this would be the one right here so he's going to line up of an age and here he comes so he's going to present him and let's look at verse six when they arrived Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel takes one look and says, this is the guy. And God says, not so fast, Samuel. Look, listen to what he says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I rejected him. That's what they did the first time, right, with Saul. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. A wonderful principle I shared with you a few weeks ago, when Saul was chosen, he was... He was people's choice. It's what they wanted. And God obliged and gave that to them. But I shared with you a lesson from the apple about the levels of different leadership with an apple. And I don't have an apple with me, but on the outside of an apple, you know what it is. It's the peel. It's what we shine up. It's what makes us pick the apple, right? That has to look good on the outside. And the apple represents our capacity, our giftedness, our competencies. And in your workplace, you go to conferences and workshops. They send you so you can polish up on your competencies your capacity in order to do whatever you do, and you want to try to be incrementally better than those in your field or those in your department, right? So we go and we want to polish up on our competencies, because that's what people see. That's what people look at, your giftedness, your, those things, your abilities, that's what they all see. So we polish up on those, make sure those really look good. But if you could peel that back, the competencies are performance, you could call it our performance, you cut below that, what's more important than our capacity or performance is our commitment. We see outstanding athletes have tremendous talent, but they never make it to the pros because they do not have the commitment level. They're not willing to, to sacrifice and, and be committed enough or disciplined enough or get away those vices and become the athlete that God intended them to be. But commitment is real important, right? Commitment is real important. But if you cut away the commitment level, now you go to things that only God, only God can really see. It's character. We can see character over time through behavior, through listening, but those character things are really, really important in someone's life, right, as they're serving the Lord. But you cut away at the character, and now we're a long ways away from performance, from those competencies, from those external things that we see. You cut away at that, and you end up with the core, the what's on the inside. The core is our identity. The core is who we are in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's, it's what we are called to do, what we are called to do. That's what it is. Do you know the difference between core and performance? There's a huge difference. See, if our identity is based on our performance, then if we lose our job, then we lose our identity, right? We lose who we are, and they're, and they're what creates. It's a crisis. And that's why you see many times people go through midlife crisis because they lost their job, and they, they lost their identity. They don't know who they are. 
And I've known pastors over the years where their identity was preaching the word of God. And when they're no longer doing that, they lost their identity and they end up dying because they don't know who they are. They don't have the identity. Our identity can never be in our performance or our calling or our gifts. It has to be in our core. It has to be who we are. It has to be in Jesus Christ, right? That's our identity. Always has to be in that. No matter what we do, our identity, our self-worth, our value is based upon Jesus and not our accomplishments, not our performance, not on our job title of who we are. It's based upon Jesus. And when it's based upon Jesus, it's all good because we see we have great value in Jesus Christ, right? So much that he died up on the cross for us, that every one of us are valued. Every one of us are made in the image of God. So we have great worth and value to God. And we should have great worth and value to everyone else, right? So your value and your worth is based upon Jesus. He's our core, right? Amen? Amen. He's our core, not our accomplishments. And that's what God is saying. God is saying, uh, God looks on the inside. God looks at the heart is what he's saying. I don't look on the outside. That's what you guys did, and that's where we got Saul as your king. You looked, he was head and shoulders, the most handsome man. That's what people look at. But he says, I look on the outside. So son number one goes, goes away, and then verse 8, with verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab, very, try to say that ten times, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Verse 9, Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. So if you're Jesse, their dad, he's got to be scratching his head. He says, boy, here's my top three choices. I brought them in front of Samuel. Samuel said, no, 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 none of these. So then he's got four more to go, and those four pass by, and Samuel says, no, not, not those. So let's read verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. I can only imagine Jesse and these boys, well, this is a very, very serious event because the prophet's in the house. So it's serious. You have to still have some civil rivalry. Uh, their household was different than the household I grew up in. I had three older brothers, a lot of civil rivalry. So certainly the oldest would expect to get the job, right? The oldest brother would get the job, but he didn't. With each one coming, and now seven of them passing, Sammy has to be thinking, do I got the right house? Is your name Jesse? And Jesse, yeah, yeah, my name's Jesse. These are my sons. So the lesson we need to learn from this passage is this, is that God looks not at the things that we look at. And so tr second point, trusting God's way, trust God's vision, and don't judge merely on externals. Trust God's vision, and don't judge merely on externals. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. He says, brothers, could be sisters, believers in Jesus Christ, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Isn't it beautiful? I think the Lord, that the Bible says he chose the weak things, he chose the broken things to be useful for his glory, to shame the wise, to change the world. I praise God for that. Don't you? That he chose the weak and broken things and the lowly things and the foolish things of this world Guys, the ones he chose, we look at ourselves as us. He says, I chose you to shame the wise, to shame the weak, shame the strong. 
I mean, shame the strong, shame, shame all those. He says, I did that. And, and that's how God chooses. So we have to understand what, what God is doing here. I think of Isaiah the prophet. Uh, eight centuries before Jesus came to this earth, what happened? He wrote prophetically of the time that Jesus would come. And he said this, when he comes, when you look at him, there won't be any beauty or majesty to attract you to him. In other words, if you've seen the pictures or, or drawings of Jesus where people have halos above Jesus' head, Isaiah is saying that's not the picture of all who Jesus is. Isaiah is saying when you see him, when you look at Jesus when he walked on this earth, he looked like any other young Jewish man at that time. He didn't look any different. You couldn't tell that he was God. You just looked at Jesus. But if you really looked at him, if you really could see Jesus, see who he really is, you would see he's God. God that came in the flesh. If you could peel back that skin, you could definitely see that he is God. And that's what he's saying. He says, so let's be careful that you and I don't make determinations uh, based on the externals because God looks at other things. God looks on the inside. He looks at the heart that only he can see. And many times we would look at, I, I remember I was in a church and they based picking leaders of the church by the way they dressed. I had someone say that. We don't dress nice enough. We can't have him being a leader. No, God doesn't look at that. God looks on the inside of who people are. He knows their hearts, and that's what God is interested in. Uh, so let me share the third point, trusting God's ways. Number three, trust God's decision, and he will only give us good. Trust God's decision, he will only give us good. Let's read verses 11 through 13. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with the fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came up on David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Samuel anointed David in the presence of his brothers, the Bible says. And David is believed to be around 15 years of age. It's just a guess, but that's what most scholars believe, around 15 years. So David was the youngest, but David was the afterthought. He was the afterthought. That's not who Jesse would pick. That's not who Samuel would pick. That's not who anyone would pick. Here's my sons. Is there anybody else? Oh, yeah, I've got my youngest, but he's out there tending sheep. It can't be him, this little young guy. He says, go get him. We're not going to sit down. We're not going to eat the meal till he arrives. And he comes in, and God says, this is the one. Anoint him. We have to trust God's decision, right? Even if it don't look right to us, we have to trust God's decision. When we trust God, he will only give us his goodness. When we trust God, God will give us what is good. But the good is not what we see good in our eyes. It's the good according to God's will, according to God's plan, according to God's eyes. That's the goodness God wants to give us. Not what we want. They wanted Saul before, and God gave that. That wasn't what God wanted. God says, no, David's my man. I'm the one I, he, I've chosen. He's the one. That's what I've given, goodness, because he's a man after my own heart. And so when we trust God, he will give his good. Good according to his plan, not mine. We may not understand, but God said, this is what's good, to carry out my purpose and plan for your life and for my glory. God promises always do that. But notice what happens. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came up on David in power. Samuel went to Ramah. So a new chapter just begun. David would be the new king, though he would not reign for several years because Saul was still there. He was reigning. Though God's hand was removed from Saul, we find out. The Bible tells us you find the words of Scripture, and the Spirit of God came upon him. 
It's very important to understand the way the Spirit of God worked in the Old Testament compared to in contrast to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon leaders and kings and people and others for a time and a purpose, for a task, for a season, or whatever it may be. The Bible said the Spirit of God had left Saul now, and now the Spirit of God comes upon David for his season as king. So it would come on for a time and a purpose, but it was not permanent in the Old Testament. He would come on for a task, and then he would leave. He would come on for a task, then he would leave. For whatever, it could be a duration of time, could be for a short time. We would come on, but he would leave. In the New Testament, we get here, the new, Holy Spirit doesn't come upon us, but anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit immediately doesn't come upon you. He indwells you, and that indwelling is permanent. The Bible says it's until the day of redemption, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, until our salvation is complete. So in this life here on this earth, the Holy Spirit will never leave you once you accept Christ your Savior. He indwells you always. He's with you wherever you go. Not for a season, not for a task, not for a time. He's with you always wherever you go. He's there, right there. You don't have to turn to find God. God's right here. He indwells you. He's right there. He's there to help, to give you his power. You have the opportunity to use his power when you follow him, his strength. His wisdom, he will guide you and lead you. If you yield your heart and mind to him, it's there. If we don't, we don't have access to that. It's when we yield to him. He wants to use us for his power and his might. David would go on and be a great king, the greatest king of Israel. But, but far from perfect, as you know, but he was a great king because he was a man after God's own heart. And when he failed, and we know he failed, he was a good confessor of sins. Just read Psalm 51. Tremendous successor uh, confessor of sins. He confessed his sins. He did. And Samuel trusted God, and God gave them what was good. What was good. According to God, God said, I'm going to pick the king I want this time. And many times we tell God, God, I want this, I want this. And God said, okay, I'll let you have it. And we reap the consequences. And sometimes we come to God and say, God, but I want what you want. I'm not laying down my demands. God, I want what you want in this circumstance. And God says, okay, let me do it the way I want to do it, and it promises to be good, guys. may not be what we want, but it's what God wants. He promised, God promises it's going to work out for his glory, his plan, his perfect and pleasing plan in every way. But let me ask you, as I was thinking about this, what does God look for when he looks for men and women to step up? Remember we talked about that last week, that we all need to step up to become the people that God wants us to be? And I thought, what, what does that look like for our lives, to, for us all to step up as men and women and young people to step up? What does that look like? I came up with three things that I found kind of in Scripture. The first one, I think that God looks for humility. It says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, This is the one I esteem. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I think God looks for humble people, people who realize, God, it's not in my strength. It's not in my willpower. It's not in my knowledge, but I'll do it in your strength and your power. And I yield myself to you. And God, I give you all the glory because I didn't do it. You did. And I come in humility. I don't come in pride. I come in humility. God, if you can use me, a servant, to accomplish your glory, praise God. And I'll give you all the fame, give you all the credit and all that. And David was like that. David was like that. I, I think the next God is looking for a holiness, for people that are walking right with him. The Bible says in Psalm 101, verse 6, it says, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will, will, will minister to me. It's not saying perfect. Today would be people who are, are trying to be more like Jesus, that our hearts are bent to be more like Christ, that 
that we're studying God's word, we're trying to follow him. Not that we're perfect, not that we don't make mistakes. I mean, David made mistakes, but God said he's a man after his own heart. But we continue to try to be more like Jesus every day, right? And, and so I think God's looking at that. People whose walk is, is not perfect, but blameless. They continue to keep moving forward toward God. That's the point. Our bent is moving toward, toward, forward toward God. And I think the third thing that he's looking for is people who have hope. In Psalm 33, verse 18, our memory verse, you know I had to get that in there someplace. It says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. God is looking for people with hope. People who have a hunger and dependence on the grace of God. That we depend upon his grace in each and every day. I can't do this myself, God. I need your grace. And we depend upon his grace. People's heart heartbeat is the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing that the gospel is the only thing that gives people hope in a world who desperately needs to hear and see Jesus, right? And we have that heartbeat to say, God, I know the only hope for them is that I'm judging these people in the world, but the only hope for them is, a heart, is Jesus Christ, the gospel. They need Jesus. That's who will change them. I get so upset the way they act, but they need Jesus. That's what will change them. So help me to share Christ with them, because that's what they need, right? So, so the thing that God looks at, I think, is humility, holiness, people whose walk is blameless, who's walking with the Lord, a follower of Jesus Christ, and also people who have hope. Hope in Jesus, hope in the gospel, hope that God can do the impossible, right? I think that's what God wants in us. This concludes our series, Nation in Trouble. We hope you enjoyed it about the life of Samuel. And one of the things we learn is, remember this, like we may not understand what's going on in our life, but God does. God does. He understands everything. So we have to trust him because he knows best. Amen? God always, always knows best. Let's not go away from what God says because we want something so bad. God always knows best, but we have to trust him. And he will give us what is good. That's what he promised. I promise to give you what is good. His goodness, according to his plan his purpose, right? But it all starts, if you're here today, all starts with knowing Jesus Christ, your Savior. You can't do good, or you can't do anything to please God until you have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, please listen to me. This is to you. This is to you. And all that know Him, you'll be praying for those that may not know Him. And you examine your own heart. Have I really trusted Christ as my Savior? That every one of us are sinners in this room, including me. We're all sinners, right? And because of our sins, we are separated from a holy, just, righteous, perfect God. He's all those things, and you and I are not. We're sinners. Left by ourselves, we will always sin. Our, our bent is sinning. That's our, that's our nature is to sin. And God is perfect. So there's a separation between us and God. There's no way that you and I can approach a holy, just, righteous God because we're sinners. And so God knows that. We're stuck in our circumstances. So God sent his son, Jesus, from heaven, who is God, the son of God, came to this earth, took on the form of a man, of a human being, even though he was God. And then he went to the cross, and on that cross, God placed all your sins, my sins, all of our sins, past, present, and all your future sins was upon Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's God's grace. He was your substitute. He took your place. He paid your sin debt, was paid up on the cross. In full, Jesus did it all for you. And now what we have to do is respond to the grace of God through Jesus Christ by coming and saying, God, I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I respond by faith that I believe what he did, and I trust him as my Savior by faith. I trust what he did upon that cross that he paid for my sins. If you've never done that, 
please do that today by simply saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I know that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that, and I trust him as my Savior. Put my faith and trust in Jesus. If you have questions about that, please see me after the service, because it all has to start right there, right? It has to start right there. If you don't know him. Don't just say, well, I know him. I've heard it so many times. This pastor says it every service. Please examine your heart. I challenge you to make sure you know Jesus. Make sure you know him. Everything else I say doesn't mean anything to you if you don't know Christ. You've got to know Jesus. For all of us that know Christ, let me go over these three points because they're really important. Trust in God's ways. Trust God's word, and he promises to lead you. Trust God's vision, and don't judge merely on externals. Trust God's decision, and he will give us good, give you good. And that good, I, I wanted to talk to you about just for a moment before I, before I pray. The goodness of God, uh, God has a purpose and plan for every one of our lives. And your purpose and plan is a little different from my purpose and plan. It's always in concert with the Word of God, though, right? And, and it doesn't mean that everything out here is bad. It, a lot of things out here are good, but those aren't God's will and plan for me. God's will and plan for me is a certain plan that he has for me, and I have to follow it. And even though there's all these things over here that are good, for me, it's not God's right plan for me to do. I have to follow him. That's why I have to follow his word. And the Bible says that when I follow his word, I will find God's perfect will, his perfect, pleasing, and perfect will every time. But I got to follow him. Doesn't mean all the other things out here in the world are bad. So many times, the people say, well, pastor, you're saying everything else is bad. No, I'm not saying. There's a lot of good things out here, but they're not for me. That God has a certain purpose and plan for me to walk with him. He says, Doug, there's a lot of choices you can make, but these aren't the choices I want for you. Even though they're not bad in themselves, I've got a plan for you. And he has one for you, too, as a follower of Jesus. If you don't know him, your plan is to know Jesus. But if you know him, God has a purpose and plan for your life. And it says it's a good, pleasing, and perfect plan that God has. His perfect will for every one of our lives. And we've got to walk with him, and the way we walk with him, by listening to his voice through the word of God, he will never lead us in contrary to this. So if you're doing something that's in conflict with the word of God, you're not walking according to God's plan. You're walking in your own plan. And it might not be something that's really bad, but if it's against God's will for you, it's not right. It's sin, right? It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm over here doing this. It doesn't mean that the things you're doing are bad. If it's not God's will for you, it's sin. We've got to follow his purpose and our plan for our lives. That's why we have to be in here. You can't just follow like me and do the things I do. God says, I got a different course for you to take. You've got to go on this side to live in holiness and blameless, but it may not be in the same footsteps that I always do. God has plans for each and every one of our lives. Amen? We need to understand that. That's why you've got your own walk with God. I've got my own walk. I've got my own testimony of what God has done in my life, and you have yours. We're all going to Christ. We're all becoming more like Jesus, and none of it's going to contradict God's word. As we're following Jesus, it has to go right with God's word. But we all have our own walk. And the only way you're going to find that, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. God says, I guide you, I use it to renew your minds so you can know the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. That's what he wants for every one of us. But we have to walk with him. And the way we walk, we have to be in his word. Trust God and trust his word. Amen? We have to trust his ways. So the, the next thing we need to do as we're doing this, the only way to do that, no matter where you are in your life, none of us have arrived, including myself, we have to surrender our hearts and minds. Is it, God, what is it in my life that I need to surrender to you? What is it in my life that, God, I'm, I, I'm just not surrendering to you, that I'm doing, it's not a bad thing, 
but it's getting in the way of me fully following you. It's fully getting in the way of me committing my heart and my life to you, to be the person that you intended me to be. That that's not in the plan really for me right now that you have in my life. What is it in my life? I need you to come and surrender. And we give our hearts and minds. And we're going to be singing a song in just a minute. I surrender. And I pray that whatever it is, it could be health issue, could be a job, could be finances, whatever it may be that you have in your life. could be your family. I need to surrender them. Surrender them to you to God and trust you with them. I'm trying to make things work. I need to surrender to you. But whatever it is that we come and surrender this morning, and we have to trust God's ways, right? So let's just pray this morning before we stand and we worship. Let's just pray. Lord, we come to you. We're so thankful, God, that you love us. We're so thankful, Lord, when we look at Samuel's life, Lord, Lord, the greatest prophet and priest of all of Israel, a man that got to choose the first two kings. The, the greatest king of Israel was David. And, Lord, it's just a, amazing uh, how you use this man to change a nation, to change a nation, God. And so, Lord, we, we look at this man. There's so many lessons that we learn, but that last lesson, Lord, that, God, you don't look at the external. You don't look in the outside, but you look at on the inside, what's in the heart. And, Lord, I pray that each one of us would examine our hearts this morning. It's easy for all of us to look good on the outside when people are watching us. But, Lord, what is our hearts on the inside? You know them. You know them. And, Lord, you might reveal it to us for things that's just not right. Whatever it may be, maybe anger, maybe unforgiveness, whatever it may be, not walking in your will, doing things that aren't bad but not according to your will, not reading our Bible, not surrendering to you, not being the mom or dad that we need to be, not being the child, uh, a, a good son or daughter to our parents, whatever it may be, Lord, you know. Help us to be the people you want us to be. And so, Lord, reveal those to us so, Lord, we can confess them. And so, Lord, from this day forward, we can say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you, and you promised me, me your goodness. I'm going to trust your will and your plan for my life. Not mine. Not mine. I'm not going to look things from the external. This looks good from what I see on the outside. But I'm going to trust God. That God looks on the inside of the issues, looks on the inside of people's hearts and mine. And he knows what's best for me. And I'm going to be all right with it with God's decisions in my life. So that I pray for each one of us, whatever it may be, Lord, that we need to surrender to you this morning, that we need to confess, that we become more like Jesus, surrendering in all areas of our life to you, obeying you in every area of our life. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us start today, wherever we're at, Lord, to just minister to our hearts and minds. And Lord, we promise that you will get all the glory, all the glory and the honor and the praise. So, Lord, today we might be good confessors of our sins the way David was in Psalm 51. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. But, Lord, he promised to lift up our hearts and minds to you and surrender. So that because when we surrender, that's the perfect peace. That's the perfect place for all of us to be, Jesus, surrendering to Jesus. That's the sweet spot of the Christian walk, to surrender to you. So, Lord, I pray that we would hit that sweet spot this morning in a walk with Jesus by us surrendering our hearts and minds to and that you may receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. And Lord, we ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen.